This holiday season, pay tribute to the people who fought for our freedom to celebrate. Featuring the largest American flag in the region, Spirit Park is now open at National Harbor, honoring active duty military and veterans. Take some time this holiday to remember, offer gratitude, and be inspired by the sacrifices of our service men and women who make our way of life possible. Plan your visit at nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. That's nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. Yeah, it's called conversations with Jeff, not screaming matches. Yeah, I, 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 you and I do not agree on Calvinism. But look how nice we are to each other. I think it's going to really shock a lot of people, thrill a lot of people. A lot of people are going to have to do some soul searching. It's like, you know what? What are you doing? You're spending all your time trying to destroy another Christian because you don't understand what's going on mm-hmm. when you should be out there winning people for Jesus, right? Thank you for the job you're doing. Thanks for being willing to address these kind of issues. They're vital to the church. I feel sorry for what's coming your way, but God bless you, man. It's it's a good, healthy conversation, and, and let's keep growing together in the Lord. People won't change unless they hear the truth, though. And so we need to know the truth, uh, speak the truth. And then the last one I would say is that we need to stay in the truth, uh, no matter what the consequences are. Okay, everybody, welcome to today's episode of Conversations with Jeff. Um, as always, we are pretty much coming out with a new episode every day, Monday through Friday. Uh, last week we had, we had a bunch of great shows. We got, we got some more, uh, lined up for this week as well. So it's just, it's going to be a lot of fun, you know, different people, different topics, and just, but the important thing is that we are, you know, staying focused on trying to figure out what the heck's actually going on, what's the truth. Um, and we're actually kind of deciphering things and taking different perspectives and taking a look at it. So that's really what we're doing here. Uh, before we get started, just want to remind you as well, we do have our membership program uh, called Plugged In. Uh, you'll get exclusive access to our Destroy Social Justice Conference, the recording, as well as our very first episode of Connected, which was a roundtable podcast that we did with myself, Sam Jones, Dustin Faulkner, and Schumann. And that was a fascinating conversation, uh, just dealing with, uh, the governmental, uh, oversteps and, uh, controls in response to the coronavirus. So it was a really interesting conversation. Go ahead and check that out. Uh, go to gatekeepersonline.com slash plugged in for more information over there. If you sign up for the annual membership, you get a free copy of our book, Social Injustice. Again, gatekeepersonline.com slash plugged in for that information. Uh, really excited about today. Uh, we're bringing back, uh, Michael Johns. Uh, he was on once before, so, uh, we're back for round two. For the, uh, there's, for just as a reminder as well, he is the co-founder of the Tea Party as well as the, uh, he was, he was the speechwriter for, uh, George H.W. Bush as well, but really excited to have you back on. And as always with this new cycle, there's, there's a ton to talk about. <laughs> yeah, there sure is. Hey, nice to see you again, Jeff. Yeah. Thank, thanks so much for coming on. Um, you know, we, we kind of, you know, dive right into it to a certain degree, but I feel like, uh, it, it's, a, it's a really interesting conversation right now in dealing with, uh, the governmental response to, uh, to the coronavirus. Um, and I think that as conservatives, there's a lot of debate and discussion about, 
is it the federal government's responsibility to do all that they're doing? Should it be delegated to the states? Like, how do we as conservatives kind of maneuver this response of this kind of unprecedented, essentially, attack on, on our country? Yeah, I think if you were looking for a set of scenarios that potentially challenged every conservative ethos about how we operate conceptually versus how we operate in, in real life, this would be, um, you know, certainly one of those sets of circumstances to look at because you have our ideological predispositions and then the reality of what needs to be done. And in my own view is that we have always needed a federal government for a broad range of functions. And in communicable disease and in public health um, and in a crisis of this magnitude, it's inconceivable to really envision how we would navigate this um, in the absence of a very assertive and comprehensive federal government response. And by that, I mean both a response to the public health needs of the country but also a response to the, you know, fiscal and monetary challenges that have arisen from essentially not completely shutting down, but largely shutting down significant portions of our economy now for, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks. So, uh, so that's the reality. And then, of course, you know, our Constitution needs to continue to guide us. Uh, our founders, in my view, in the uh, Obviously, it continues to be a core foundation of our Tea Party movement were geniuses. Um, they have they established in that constitution a methodology for amending or altering the constitution should circumstances change. But the 10th Amendment obviously continues to apply here in the sense that the responsibilities not specifically delegated to the federal government are reserved to the states. So the answer to your question also is that states have immensely um, great uh, responsibilities in responding to this. And then I think that's also important because when you look at this crisis, and I was just looking at these numbers yesterday, um, New York State has 66,497 cases of 155,969 nationally. That's I did my math on that 42.6% of coronavirus cases are in one state. Uh, now setting aside why that's the case, you can't compare what New York state is doing and needs to be doing at this moment compared to um, a broad range of other states that have, you know, cases that haven't, you know, surpassed a few hundred yet. I mean, it's night and day. So that flexibility needs to be maintained. And I'm not sure that there's a universal set of criteria that need to be applied when you have this so disproportionately focused in several states. And, you know, if you added New Jersey and California and Washington state, say, into that mix, you know, you have well, well, uh, over um, 50% of a solid lion's share of the cases globally. I mean, yeah. 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 And, and, and see, like, and, and that, become, that becomes the issue of, you know, like, I, I have a lot of friends, tend to be more liberal, you know, obviously we're out, in our, out here in California, pretty much everybody's liberal. Um, but a lot of things that they're saying is like, why doesn't Trump just shut down the entire country? Let's, let's do a shutdown, shut everybody down across the place. Let's, like, kill this thing, get rid of this. And on one hand, it's like, okay, maybe pragmatically, 
that that would be the right answer. But then, as conservatives, is that the right answer to have, to be able to give the authority to the president to be able to just like everybody stay in? I mean, essentially, that's what has been everybody's concern of you know having martial law or something along those lines. So, as conservatives, do do we support something like that in order to beat the virus? But then, is there is that a bad precedent to be setting for the future? No, I think the way this administration's responded has been appropriate because it's t- it's taken uh, coronavirus with a great degree of seriousness from, by the way, from the beginning, from day one, uh, in imposing the, tra- the global travel restrictions, which I don't believe any prominent Democrat, not Joe Biden, not Hillary Clinton, not Nancy Pelosi, all of them denounced it at the time, contained the 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 damage that was done but simultaneously issuing you know guidelines for the public health that admittedly you know in 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 at least in the federal case is not enforceable by rule of law you know we're not going to arrest somebody for not honoring a uh, social distancing policy but it i think it's, it you know it seems essentially to really be containing the you know at least the magnitude of the crisis to put it in perspective um and again i i think the worst is yet to come so i don't want to you know i don't want it to be perceived as belittling the magnitude of this crisis it's clearly the biggest public health crisis of our lifetimes it could be it could turn out to be the greatest in the history of the country even um you know at least of the century but we have 155,969 cases as of yesterday. That's 0.05 percent of the country that's been infected. Yeah, uh, that's 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 a that's an important distinction to make because because for all for all of the response, you know, you would think that it was a much greater percentage of the people that have been infected. Yeah, I think this is the real sensitive conversation uh, that I'm sure is happening. I know for a fact is happening within this administration. Um, and yet it's difficult to have, you know, in the public because you have, like everything else in our public dialogue, uh, these extreme positions. I mean, we have people like, say, your friends in California are like, hey, shut the whole economy down, um, which, by the way, you put a lot of footnotes behind that as far as what would be required to actually restart an economy. Economies don't turn off and on with the flip of a light switch. And those who I think maybe on the more libertarian scale, uh, which I'm curious, I'm gonna and I intend to look into this a little bit more. I don't identify as a libertarian uh, for a broad range of reasons, including my strong belief in borders and you know many of the issues Trump's raised. But to sort of identify what their solutions would be, because I don't really see how, in the absence of some um, parameters that are established here, that you contain. This virus, you would unnecessarily endanger the lives of many. But to put it in perspective and continue with those stats, so you have a 0.05% of the population that's obtained this infection. Um, from that, as of yesterday, we had 2,854 deaths. So um, that's among all reported cases. You know, in all probability, the cases are many more than those that have actually been reported. There are people who have experienced symptoms, didn't even identify what they were. Cases cleared up. But if you say just for debates purposes or discussion purposes that that's all the cases there were, the mortality rate's 1.8 percent by my math so far. 
And then importantly, you know, this is a global crisis. And, it, you know, it's my strong belief that Iran and China, two of the center pieces really in the puzzle here as far as where this has been most prevalent, um, have probably underreported their the number of cases that they've experienced and the number of deaths that they've experienced from it. But even if you take them at their word, you know, you're still looking at it about eight out of 10 cases that are outside the United States. So those are stats that you need to keep in mind. Um, and yet, you know, I think we're entering probably the most sensitive period of this in April where cases in all probability by almost every projection are going to increase, deaths from it are going to increase. And so the question is like, how do we get through this? Not in a way that adheres to some rigid set of ideological criteria, but in a way that puts the public health and protection of individuals at the forefront and allows us ultimately to, you know, reassimilate and to reignite this economy um, sooner rather than later. Yeah. And, and it seems like, you know, as always, there there's extreme points of view on how we should be how we should be responding, you know, because you've got I believe it was the lieutenant governor in Texas was saying that, you know, people that are older are willing to sacrifice themselves for, you know, to keep the economy going for their for their children and grandchildren and things like that. And then you've got other people like uh, Mayor Garcetti out here in, in L.A. and Gavin Newsom out here in California where they're like, hey, we're going to shut everything down. Like I believe – like I saw a video of them like going around with like helicopters with megaphones to parks and you know telling everybody that they have to go in. It's – you know, I, there's these polar opposite responses and at a certain point we need to be realistic but we still need to be somewhat ideological as well in the sense of like our principles. And I feel like that's where we're kind of going through and trying to figure out – how should we respond? So when we're looking at President Trump's response, you know, he's been do he's been doing a lot, but I feel like at the same time, it's been pretty his response has been pretty reasonable, I feel like. What what's your take on what he's actually doing himself? I think it's been entirely reasonable. Uh, if you go through the set of steps that he's taken when he imposed these travel restrictions, he had he had uh, China was put in place right away. Um I don't want to single out Joe Biden, but if you say he's sort of the most prominent Democrat at this moment, uh, I went back and looked at what his commentary was on that travel restriction, which undoubtedly has saved thousands of lives. This could be a multiplier effect of 10, I think, if, if you hadn't put that in place. He said after the president put in the travel restriction against China, this is no time for Donald Trump's record of hysteria and xenophobia, hysterical xenophobia and fear mongering. Of course, none of those were the sentiments that were behind the actual travel restrictions, and sub which the president subsequently extended to those who had visited South, those from South Korea, those who had uh, been in Iran within a certain period of time, and then ultimately on to Europe. So it was <laughs> there was no xenophobic component to it. It was about protecting the American people, and then of course the economic assistance packages. The, the response of the Fed, which the president doesn't control, uh, it's independent, obviously from the executive branch, but I think we've seen a Federal Reserve that in the in the minds of this administration, in my own mind too, is, was too slow to lower rates in all probability earlier on in this administration, which but has you know been responsive with the tools that it has at its disposal to improve liquidity within our capital markets and within within the country. Um, that's being oversimplified by including some on our side as sort of a you know, uh, corporate welfare or whatnot. Uh, that's not the way to look at 
what the Fed has done here. These are not grants, they're loans. But it raises important questions because, um, you know, if you look at the deficiencies of the process, companies are not having to demonstrate that they have exhausted all private capital options. They've not had to demonstrate uh, they've not had to put up collateral as you would typically have to do in a private loan. Um, and, uh, you know, there are some good, there, there are some positive provisions. I think when you look at this, it's key to me that the administration, this administration, and I think Republicans in Congress were acutely aware of the deficiencies within the response to the 2008 ha- uh, housing and banking crisis, um, particularly the fact that you had banking executives who had been extremely involved and actually orchestrating in a lot of ways the, the the low-income housing bailouts and, you know, then shorting, without getting into all the deals, short, you know, shorting the, uh, the uh, um, uh, positions that they had on loans that they knew would likely default, um, you know, never really paying any penalty at all. In fact, being enriched by, by a process that may <clears throat> or may not have been legal, but it was certainly um, filled with corrupt intentions. I think this time, at least you're seeing provisions put in place is if you participate in this package, for instance, high high level executives within the company forego pay increases, things like that. There are compromises that are made, um, but you're still looking at a situation where the Treasury Department, which is you know, a crucial component of our executive branch of government is positioned now to be taking equity positions in some key areas of our infrastructure. And we've always technically distinguished ourselves from, I'm going to just single out Europe, particularly of saying, you know, no, you know, air, uh, say in the, in the, um, uh, air, in the area of commercial aircraft, um, and, and air travel, that, that that's a private sector, not a public sector commodity. You know, in the eyes of Europeans, no, it's a public sector commodity. They're prepared to lose money on it. They're prepared to have government essentially foot the bill for it. That's room for dialogue and honest disagreement on how we should go about that. But we, you know, to deny the fact that we have taken in this crisis a step in that direction would be misleading. We have. Um, on the other hand, it, it is my view, you can't allow these hugely critical components of our economic infrastructure to simply collapse and expect that at some future point with all of the regulatory capitalization and other burdens that they're just going to simply emerge. It's not, this is not like uh, opening a uh, corner you know, lemonade stand or something. These are really difficult industries to establish, and when they're gone – you know, it's like they're gone. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I think the president's really responded correctly. I thought the the one thing that was not done, which I guess is still on the table, that could have been done, um, which made the most sense to me as the first step, was the payroll tax cut. Meaning when we get into tax relief right now, uh, you repeatedly hear the liberal response that um, the – the tax cuts were afforded those, um, you know, only the only the wealth, they only benefited the wealthy. Well, you know, with the reality of like half the country nearly, it's not paying federal income taxes right now. So when you cut ta- federal income taxes, those who benefit are on that on that upper echelon of earnings. But the payroll taxes, the one tax that hits every worker on day one, 
uh, regardless of what your uh, wages are, including if you're a low-wage hourly employee, and not to afford them the opportunity to just simply take home more of their earnings seems to me to be an oversight, but the Democrats would have no part in that, unfortunately, in this great ongoing partisan divide that we're experiencing in the country. Yeah, and, and that was the interesting thing I feel like about the whole debate over um, over this, you know, stimulus package or bailout or whatever it is that we want to call it is is that I feel like there there was there obviously especially from the Democrats, but there was a lot of partisanship in the debate. Uh, you know, things were held up for quite a while uh, because they were trying to you know sneak in some of their pet projects and you know especially de- even things dealing with like abortion and and things like that. I thought I thought was pretty despicable. Um, but you know some some simple solutions like dealing with with the payroll taxes and like that. I I don't understand why that's not option number one as opposed to dropping two trillion dollars on you know funding everything in all the economy. Why can't we just let people take home more money? Why can't we you know t- you know put put a, put a hold on let's say mortgage payments and rents for two months instead of having to send out you know just checks that aren't really covering people's mortgages and rents you know. I don't know. It's as a conservative, you're looking at you're this right. like, you're is this absolutely right? Yeah. yeah. Is this, is this the right answer? I think it's one of the most important points to take away from this because the key to a successful response in a crisis like this, and unfortunately, we probably don't spend enough time, you know, delving into the hypotheticals of what we would do in a scenario like this. We may do it from a public health standpoint, but from an economic response standpoint, those considerations are not ones that Congress is engaged, trust me, having worked in Congress, they are not engaged in that level of thinking. Uh, now, the Federal Reserve might be. But it, it, it I think the key here is that the, the support that we provide, A, a that it be targeted, right? That, that it be designed to assist those who have been specifically harmed by this condition, that it not be broad, encompassing entities or individuals that, that are unaffected by it. And then B, that it be temporary, Meaning we don't really know sitting here at the end of March of 2020 whether this crisis is in the final two weeks, two months, year um, of of its existence. But it will at some juncture end and at some juncture before then it will begin to alleviate. So the support that we, we provide should not be boundless and endless. Um and then when you're under the – this is exactly what I, I can recall this very distinctly in the 2008 financial crisis. Um, it was in the midst of the McCain uh, campaign. It suspended his campaign, came back to Washington, supported it in the eyes of many of us. That was a defining moment negatively for his campaign. That would have been the opportunity for him to have drawn some distinctions between him and – between he and Obama. But – you know, this issue, again, that's emerged here is that you don't really have, when these crises emerge, a whole lot of preparation time. So I think within the administration, understandably, you're saying, look, these, these are the pressures on the economy. This is what we're going to face, you know, even with a week of inaction. Um, so even procrastination over a period of days to explore options becomes difficult. So while I said earlier that I believe companies that are participating in the repo, it's called repo, it's a Fed mechanism loan process should be required to put up collateral requirements. In fairness to the government and in fairness to the Fed, uh, the response from their end might be, well, that's interesting, but that would be like weeks of additional consideration time, and we just don't have those weeks available. And by the way, 
The repo component of this, which is being wrongly depicted as corporate welfare, has not even been fully utilized um, by the private sector yet. So in essence, to summarize it, like, is there a role for the public sector in lending facilities to keep open private sector entities that we don't subsequently have to nationalize? I believe the answer is yes. Now, you could find that some on the libertarian side who would say the answer is no, but I do not understand intellectually, and I've been at this for decades now, how you arise from a crisis of this if you allow our economy to collapse to that magnitude. The key here is to maintain our free market economy, and in doing that, we maintain some degree of pragmatism and flexibility with short-term uh, tools at our disposal. Yeah, and, and and I think and I think that again, like like we we're kind of saying, like these are these are important conversations that I think we need to have more of outside of this crisis to where we know what's going to happen next time around. Because I think that I think one of the concerns that a lot of conservatives, maybe even like libertarians, are having right now is. Are we setting a bad precedent moving forward with some of the reactions that we're having by both state governors uh, as well as the federal government with, like, essentially this bailout plan? Like, are we setting a bad precedent? Let's say we get a Democrat in charge next time this crisis happens. Like, are they going to take it to that much more of an extreme because we don't have those safeguards? And I'm wondering if maybe what we need to do once we get out of this crisis is maybe consider – I mean, do we need to amend the Constitution to allow some of these safeguards to be in place in times of, like, a national emergency? Because I feel like, to a certain degree, there's maybe we're just kind of throwing the Constitution out the window in a lot of areas, as opposed to having that discussion, should we update some of those uh, things for a time of crisis? I don't know. It's But it's a conversation I think we should be having. No, you know, I mean, there's – I'm not a proponent, by the way, of the Convention of States, which is something that, you know, would – which has been embraced by conservatives, but not by liberals, uh, which is interesting to me because of the convention of states, which would open basically the opportunity for really broad, wide-ranging adjustments to our constitution. It seems to me to be the ultimate in, in, active, in constitutional activism, especially at a moment when we're still not enforcing existing components of the constitution. It also would never allow us to have a monopoly on what those amendments would be. When you open a convention of states on constitutional amendments, you would afford uh, those on the far left to, for instance, propose a repeal of the Second Amendment, propose significant constraints on the First Amendment, um, you know, and, and, you know, address Fifth Amendment protections. You could have a really bad outcome to a convention of states. It's a very risk-filled entity. And, but you do point to the, as much as the Constitution remains a, a genius document, some of the vagueness as it relates to contemporary issues that we're confronting, particularly when I'm talking about some of these details, which, you know, it's easy for your eyes to glaze over when you talk about it, but the core to it of how our Fed actually functions, how money enters into our economy in a fiat currency system are not issues they're not issues that are addressed with extraordinary specificity within the constitutional framework because they predate fiat currency um, and they predate any conception of a crisis of this magnitude, a country of this size, you know, um, but it continues to me, in, me, in my view, to be a guiding document and a clear cut on the, on the core freedoms that we need to be protecting. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Now, I, now I think kind of like you know shifting a little bit in in this conversation, but taking a look at kind of the world's response to all of this kind of stuff, and you know, like we're we're seeing uh, the WHO. Uh, response. We're seeing, and the fascinating thing with that is how closely connected and tied they are to China, which is the epicenter right. of how this all started. If you can kind of talk a little bit about that and like, what's your take on the more international response to this issue? Well, I think when we get through this whole thing now is not the time necessarily for us to be diving this on a policy front, but I think we have identified what many of us suspected, and I certainly have suspected for a long time is that we have a crisis of process and a crisis of leadership at the World Health Organization. We have undue influence by China in the way it's going about its work. And, um, you know, in my judgment, even though it's starting to get to be a little bit of attention on this, the inst- human instinct when you face a crisis of this magnitude, with the, all, the, all the, the, you know, the loss of human life, people's health endangered, the, the social isolation, the emotional cost of that, the, the vast economic cost is to say, well, somebody's to, who's to blame, what institution or individuals to blame, you know, and that's sometimes that's a dangerous press. That's a dangerous question to ask because we're in an imperfect, we're imperfect species in an imperfect world. And things do sometimes simply happen as the saying to paraphrase the saying, <laughs> but, um, Look, the World Health Organization deserves a lot of blame for the situation we're in. They deserve some degree of blame. This is what they said on January 14th, January 14th, 2020. So we're now talking well over a month into the Wuhan component of this crisis, right? Chinese authorities have found no clear evidence of human transmission of the novel coronavirus identified in Wuhan, China. So two problems with that statement. Number one, uh, whatever the exact origin of the the coronavirus, China was acutely and well aware that it was being transmitted uh, human to human um, uh, at that point. And number two, the World Health Organization is guilty at that point of either one of two things, either also being aware of that and misleading the world, which is actually the greatest disservice they could serve as the world's largest health organization, or number two, um, you know, just simply taking China at its word, which is, um, you know, (laughs) and also equally unacceptable Approach. I mean, the World Health Organization should actually probably take no government's word, uh, but of all the government's words you were going to take to take China at their word with their history of misrepresentation is astonishing to me. And then when you look at the actual damage that was done by that, um, we could have been at that moment at work on testing. We could have been at work on vaccines. We could have been at work on medical device, respirators, all of the infrastructure needs that we're talking about. We could have begun having the dialogue you and I were just having about what a potential uh, fiscal and monetary response should be to the crisis. But none of um, that was possible because they were transmitting to the world that this was not a problem. And then you go further and say within China itself, um, you know, 
they had the opportunity and a decision to make early on. Were they going to cooperate with, with us in the world community or were they going to be closed off as they too commonly are and, and secretive about the whole thing? And they really did not allow in CDC right away. Uh, and they still have not shared vital data or statistics with U.S. public health officials. And, and my, my question, which I think they, they have to be required to answer at this point, is why not? Why not? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I mean, because that's ultimately a disservice to global health. It's a disservice to the bilateral relationships between Washington and Beijing, which are already strained and immensely sensitive. And um, I just so I think there's a lot of room for disappointment within this. You're not going to hear that as forcefully out of the administration, in part because there's such a broad range of issues that the, you know, you have to kind of prioritize your issues with China. You can't put everything on, on the table at once, uh, which is one of the reasons I think the president sort of downplayed the China propaganda as it relates to conspiracy theories and whatnot recently. Uh, that's not ignorance on his part as it relates to what China is doing. He acknowledged that China is engaged in global disinformation. However, we have you know, a structure of priorities that have to be managed in this relationship. And I think that suggests that maybe that one is important, but not the top priority right now. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that especially dealing with all of this coming out of China as well, it, it's, it leads to another conversation on our reliance on China uh, for as, as many products as, as we import. And, you know, because, because I think that that, that has been a big contributing factor even to, this disease, previous disease outbreaks and things like that is that there's a lot of trade. There's a lot of travel back and forth between China and here. And there's a lot of reliance on there because we can, we can get stuff for crazy cheap from them because they don't have minimum wage laws like we do here. And I think that that kind of leads to a question of should we be relying on these foreign countries for so much? And is that, is that in all reality a national security threat to us moving forward? In my judgment, of course, it's a national security threat to us. And I think that that question and, the, and I think most Americans recognize it's a it's a national security threat. It's one of the reasons the president was successful in 2016 is that there was a broad range of recognition that a lot of these issues he first began talking about, including our over-reliance on China and China's unfair practices, were not ones that had been addressed prominently by either party for decades prior to um, his candidacy. It's also one of the reasons I endorsed him on day one. But, you know, 95% of uh, pharmaceutical management or pharmaceutical production uh, within China, that's an astonishing statistic. Um, I've worked in the pharmaceutical industry at Eli Lilly and knew, you know, was there in the 90s when they when a lot of this outsourcing uh, began. I thought it was a dangerous trend then, even with countries that were not enemies of us. Um, and I think you have to define, you know, industries that we need to be prepared to um, not be reliant upon with, with, with other countries in the world. Strategic assets, you know, would not probably include every industry or every product line. It would exclude a lot of them, in fact. But clearly, to be reliant 
on China and to have China baitingly say in the midst of this crisis, hey, we'll just cut off your pharmaceuticals, which, you know, I think they were trying to remind the world, which they do way too often, in my judgment, that they have leverage and power. Um, I don't think it was a serious threat. Not under any, I don't believe they're going to do that. It's not in their interest to do that either. But the fact that it is technically correct that they have the capability to do that is an immensely frightening reality. Yeah, and and I, and I think that that then leads us to be to like try to consider like, you know, are we as Americans willing to pay more? To be able to be able to you know essentially produce stuff back here in the United States, you know, and I, and I think to a certain degree that's that's what's hard about this minimum wage debate that we were having over the last couple of years of raising minimum wage up to fifteen dollars an hour and things like that is that just in my opinion makes us more reliant on these foreign countries that can that can pay literally pennies on the dollar to these employees and sweatshops and things like that because they can make it dirt cheap, so of course we can import it and then sell the stuff at the dollar store, you know, you can't afford to do that if you're paying somebody $15 an hour to do that kind of a thing. So that, that begins this kind of debate over what do we actually want as Americans? And I don't know if America has fully decided what we actually want. Do we want the cheap stuff or do we want to be self-reliant? Well, I think whenever you're dealing with any healthcare topic or discussion, the answer is we want all of it. <laughs> you know, that's part <laughs> of the challenge. That's what we're at a standstill on American healthcare policy because one of the strongest held sentiments of the American people right now on healthcare is they want lower drug prices. Um, if you look in detail at any polling of individuals on what their policy priorities are right now, uh, it's amazing how high that is on their list of priorities. And that's despite President Bush 43 putting into place Medicare Part D which provides a substantial degree of coverage of pharmaceuticals. This is a real serious concern. And then simultaneously, you can see how that collides with lowering the cost of production for pharmaceuticals, which can appear very tempting when you say, well, how are we going to lower these costs? That's been the private sector solution. But on a private sector basis, they're not going through the levels of considerations of public interest as it relates to strategic threats to the country, circumstances that could arise from a national security um, perspective or a breakdown of bilateral relations. Those are not things that are typically coming up in corporate boardrooms uh, right now. The essence of the question, though, is that I mean, we have a president, and uh, throw some props to Marco Rubio, too, um, who, uh, as you know, our Tea Party movement was forcefully behind um, as a candidate for Senate, um, in identifying the magnitude of our over-dependence on China, and we need to get away from it. And the, on your final point on the issue of the costs, uh, you know, over time in economics, you've got this phrase economies of scale, which you probably have heard about, is that as you begin to magnitude manufacture more and more of any individual price of any individual product, the price comes down on an incremental basis. You know, now China is reaping all of those economies of scale benefits because of the magnitude of production they're doing. If we were doing that here, um, we would potentially be reaping the benefit of it. 
And there's other issues, too, like the drug importation question, things that we need to be getting around to. Um, as it relates to coronavirus, so I think, you know, uh, the, other the other question that came up was this off-label use of therapies for the purposes of um, treating conditions and particularly life-threatening conditions. And, you know, I thought the FDA's response here, too, on this crisis was really pretty good in the sense that they um, moved to approve emergency authorization for the one novel off-label use of a malaria medication that has proved uh, to be effective effective globally in in these cases and that's another it's a complicated that's another complicated area but we need to get better at being able to establish the safety and efficacy of medications more quickly than we do right now that's where a lot of the cost in pharmaceutical production lies and we need to be a country that is the global home to innovation in healthcare. we historically have been that but we've lost quite a bit of it to europe and to china Mm -hmm. and, and I think a lot of that is because of, like, like you were saying, like a lot of the governmental, you know, regulations and, you know, they just make it so difficult and expensive to, to get things. Like I know that I have, a, I have a lot of friends in the food industry and I know it's, it's a different industry altogether, but it, it's so expensive just to even, you know, get organic labeling on products like that. A lot of companies, it's like because they can't afford to drop thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, uh, you know, they, I'm sorry. To go through the actual yeah, process. Yeah, to, to, go, through, to go through the process and get it. And you've got all these small little companies. They can't afford to do that. So magnify that times however many hundreds on a big pharmaceutical, a big pharmaceutical scale. It, it's, it's, diff, it's difficult to do. And that's why I think a lot of this is really expensive. Um, but then, but then I think kind of in, in dealing with all of this, you know, Trump, when he was campaigning, he was, he was pushing an America first agenda. And, you know, he, and he really, he really made a big focus on those words, America first. And it's almost like he prophetically predicted something like this was going to happen. But, but I think that that's a conversation that the Democrats were saying he was racist for saying that or bigoted or xenophobic or whatever it is. But at the same time, I think it's a, it's a legitimate conversation that we need to have. Do, are we going to put America first or are we going to be putting China or Middle East or these other countries and other places that again, coming out of this, we might need to, you know, get back to that. Yeah, I think in the minds of, you know, unfortunately, many in Washington, they would re respond that that's an oversimplification, that we're in a globalized economy. But I think one of the things that's developed since the Trump presidency has been the unearthing of a lot of truth and reality as it relates to wrongful predictions and projections by some of this, I think it's the, the expert class of this country has really been revealed to uh, not be as expert as we thought they were. And sadly, you know, we took a lot of their advice and guidance on some real crucial issues. And I'll give you one example. Also from the 90s, I can recall I uh, after the Bush administration had worked with a large uh, global U.S. government organization that was involved in supporting uh, emerging democracies in the post. This was right after the end of the Cold War, War. And I would routinely raise some of these issues about China and the rebuttal from people on our side, ideologically, and from people on the left 
as it related to it was that as China's economy grew, as it ex- as it expanded, which it clearly was beginning to in a in a in a in a very expeditious way, would, that the society would open up and that you would see a greater respect for human rights as the middle class sort of established itself within China. You would have too much pressure on the government uh, to be able to pull off the Tiananmen Square like and other human rights abusing behaviors that they were then engaged in. And of course, when you look at what's happened now, uh, 20 years later, their economy has grown exponentially and their abuse of human rights has also grown exponentially, meaning the exact opposite of what they projected and predicted. And these were some of the leading sinologists in the world uh, is what's transpired. And unfortunately, I just, and come to the conclusion again, aligned with what the president has said that um, you know this swamp of people and institutions is corrupted by money and power, and they're fully capable and have proven themselves entirely too willing to misrepresent things um, for the interests of those two objectives. And you know we, which is why I've believed in the founding of our Tea Party movement of decentralizing political authority back into the hands of the people in ways that would allow us to make our arguments and engage politically um, outside of that arena. Not exclusive to that arena, all right, but not dependent on that arena. And I believe that that continued to be one of the biggest issues and challenges that we have is that the American people see these issues. They understand these issues. They may not be expert on them, but they have the right instincts and inclinations and they need to be incorporated in a, in a bigger, not a smaller way into our political process. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think, and I think the interesting thing too about this is seeing how the mainstream media has responded to how, you know, to Trump's decisions as well as a lot of um, a lot of the politicians too, you know, because I feel like we are in the midst of a crisis, but they're still they're still kind of angling towards the 2020 election because we do have that election coming up. And and in one of the things that that I've come to realize in talking to a lot to a lot of people is that a lot of the criticisms that a lot of my friends out here in California have of Trump is, isn't necessarily his decisions, but his demeanor and how he responds to the media. And, you know, like even at the press conferences, like they'll ask him hostile questions, he'll respond, kind of put them in their place, but he's the one that gets bashed, not them for asking him these dishonest questions. Like how, how do, how do we even like maneuver this whole situation of a dishonest media, you know, putting dishonest questions before the president, but then, you know, looking ahead to 2020, how is this all going to play out to a certain degree, do you think? I think among a lot of people who fundamentally disagree with the president ideologically use that as the cover for their own disagreements with the president. It's an easier point to make. I've frankly not yet identified a singular person who says, you know, I agree with Trump on everything ideologically, but because of this or that personal trait, I'm not going to vote for him. Um, I, I would suspect, and I've, as I've said previously, that the 63 million Americans who supported Trump in 2016 
are going to vote with even greater levels of enthusiasm and less uncertainty in 2020 for him than they did in 16. And I guarantee you, if there was a, a broad number of people who were not in that camp, the media would be putting them in front of you every day. Here's this man or woman who supported Trump in 16, but because of this, that, or the other thing, he's not going to support him in 20. The reality is that is just not a broad part of this political electorate. We have this, I don't even like to call it a Trump base. I think it minimizes it. It's 63 million people. It's half the electorate um, that is with the president. And then, you know, there's clearly a, a, a solid foundation of people that are ideologically just never going to vote for a Republican or a conservative um, and a certain number of people who are undecided. I think that's a shrinking number of people in the electorate. More important are the number of people who are uninspired. And um, I, you know, I looked recently at this what's called enthusiasm poll for candidates because um, it's intriguing when you go back through 2004 no, no presidential candidate has ever won when they've been trailing in their enthusiasm uh, numbers, you know, as um, Hillary Clinton did, as uh, Romney did, as McCain did, as John Kerry did. They all trailed. And um, Joe Biden right now is down like 29 points to Trump on this enthusiasm gap. So while the poll, you might see polling numbers that show, hey, aha, here's one that shows Biden ahead you know, in, in, in political support, you've got this large number of people who are not motivated by his candidacy or not inspired by his candidacy are not likely going to be out in November 2020 voting for him. Um, that's not meaning they support the president, but they're not sufficiently inspired by Biden to support him either. Yeah, I think Romney, Romney you know, had a very winnable election in 12 with the same set of circumstances. And he very unwisely chose not to engage um, our Tea Party movement, which then really had direct mobilization capability of tens of millions of Americans and, you know, a few million votes there of people who, for a fact, were inclined to vote for Romney, who had voted for Bush or had voted for McCain didn't go out and vote that day, and um, that gave Obama four more years. Yeah, you know, and, and, I have I made these notes because I've been thinking of developing something on this, and I sort of looked at, you know, I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, the media does sort of appear to be cheering against the president um, from the very beginning on this. And, you know, at the very beginning, you know, we talked about the response that they had to the travel restrictions, which was one of the most sensible and, and still one of the most sensible steps the federal government can take to contain this. We don't have a vaccine. Federal government can only do so much. There's time involved, et cetera. But, you know, I went through these steps. I said, number one, um, the statement that was made that the president told governors in the conference call that they need to go out and get their own ventilators. Well, then, you know, the reality of that conversation comes out and it says, no, the federal government is doing everything we can do. If you guys can get ventilators, go get them. So that was fundamentally misrepresented to the public. You had number two, this uh, position, which was circulated globally, that somehow the president was trying to um, 
arrange a monopoly on the vaccine, that's not even really an option when you consider the methodologies through which um, a vaccine is approved in the U.S. through its, our testing and FDA processes and, and those of foreign countries. You had the nationwide curfew law, which literally the na- no, nothing short of the National Security Council had to come out and rebut and say that this is not under any degree of current consideration to put in place a national curfew. But you had all of this hysteria there for a few days running around the fact that we were on the imminent brink of some sort of national curfew. If you remember the Rose Garden conference, uh, press conference, where he brought in all of the uh, private sector executives, which I thought was very persuasive and um, uh, effective way of, of showing the fact that this is not a government responsibility. This is not a private sector responsibility. It's kind of, you know, everyone, we're all in this, you know, public and private sector to get this thing solved. The, when he met, mentioned that Google had been working on this website to um, put together, you know, a, a definitive source of coronavirus resources, you know, and they reported that Google wasn't doing that, that it was only something in the Bay Area, and then subsequently Google had to come out on a corporate level and say, no, in fact, we have been working with the administration exactly as the president said. They misrepresented that. Big, two biggest lies have been the these final two. The 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 one that the president eliminated the what's called pandemic department. Um, <laughs> there is no pandemic department in the federal government. There's a broad range of agencies and departments that have functional responsibility in responding to this. I mean, we have like FEMA has got you know certain responsibilities. The CDC has certain responsibilities. Health and Human Services has certain responsibility. You know, um, CMS, which governs our Medicare and Medicaid services, has certain responsibilities. Other agencies and departments, transportation. So then we have we have uh, this portion of the National Security Council, and it turns out, well, no, the singular source for this Trump shutdown, the pandemic department, was a former Obama appointee who had been replaced within the administration, who said that. Um, Trump had done that. The guy who took over subsequently had to write this opinion piece for the uh, Washington Post uh, spelling out, no, in fact, nothing was shut down. You know, there was some restructuring within the NSC and some of those responsibilities were shifted within the NSC and and there were additional personnel uh, brought in to manage them. But that was a complete lie. And yet, you know, for weeks you kept hearing this, not like days, weeks kept hearing, you know, this, well, the president has done this. The, pres- the, the other lie, the president has cut funding for CDC. Funding for CDC has gone up every year in the three years of this administration, just completely factually uh, inaccurate reporting. And then the final point that the president had ever labeled this a hoax, the uh, rally he spoke at in South Carolina when this was first emerging, he had said that the Democrats' depiction of the administration as not managing it properly kind of followed on top of Russia and Ukraine and was their latest hoax. It was designed, it was the hoax was how Democrats were representing what the competent management that they were at the time bringing. Uh, to addressing this crisis in the earliest days of it, when it was essentially restricted to the state of Washington, at no point did he ever say that this was not a real threat to the country or that the federal government wasn't taking it seriously. 
Yeah, and in and, and what's fascinating is that, you know, I have, I have a lot of friends. They'll they'll text me or message me or send me an email like, hey, what's going on with this? Why 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 did he say this? And almost every single time I get one of those messages or somebody reaches out to me like that, you actually go and you look you do your research, you look at the context of what was said, and it's almost never what the media is reporting. And so then that that leads into like at what point do we just like stop paying attention to them. I mean, you know, they're clearly not putting out the truth. And I think that that's repeatedly stated over and over and over again. I mean, even look at this latest thing with uh, Rachel Maddow and her response to Trump with uh, with the ship coming in to New York. And she's and clearly she was wrong. But even now, she won't admit the fact that she was wrong in, in her prediction. And again, it's just a bunch of misinformation out there. And it's it's like, how do we move forward with this when you've got a dishonest media? Yeah, and I and I do believe it's on both sides. I mean, one of my biggest frustrations has been, um, you know, even mis uh, misrepresentations of this repo component of the Federal Reserve's response and depicting it wrongly. Um, and of course, when these individuals come out and improperly label it corporate welfare, uh, which they know is going to to stir people into anger and frustration and. Um, kick off a whole set of of political issues um, that, you, you, of course, you never see with them their alternative plan for how they would have handled this. Uh, you, you know, Rachel Matt, who's Rachel Maddow? I mean, um, you know, here she is like offering her commentary on the logistics of naval uh, assets and personnel around the world, you know, and like you correctly said, I, mean, I called her out on that, too, because she said there's no way that um, that the president would have these naval health oriented ships in the United States for weeks. And then within 10 days, of course, we have one of the largest of them in New York City Harbor, where it's most needed right now to address the issues in New York State and address non coronavirus issues in um in new york state to take the burden off of the hospitals so and you know it's like they just keep going and it's just there's really no other profession like this when you think about it like you know uh, of, of where you can get so many things so wrong so routinely and then you just sort of shrug your shoulders and move on to um to the next next one i mean and there, and by the way the errors if you notice and of course, you do. You don't. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Always seem to break one way. Yeah. They never seem to. They never seem to make an error in the benefit of the president, or, you know, or an error that that unfair is unfair toward the left side of of um, American politics. The errors always break against this president and against uh, those affiliated with American conservatism, and it's become groupthink. And it's sad because it's. Really, diminish. I mean, there's there's no institution that I can think of um, outside of Congress and media and maybe attorneys that are low, the more lowly thought of by the American people. So these same media figures that continue to go, aha, look, the president's popular support is only at 45 percent. Go take a look at what theirs is. It's, you know, 12, 15 percent, less than that sometimes. I mean, they they. Um, they will never again, in my view, based on the um, 
magnitude of bias that they've reflected over the past few decades being able to establish that level of credibility with the American people. And that's one of the reasons that media has so, changed so dramatically over the last uh, decade that uh, it's created demand for more objective sources of news and alternative sources of news. Yeah. Not well, facts, but alternative sources of news. Right. Well, see, like that, that's the thing is like lo- looking historically, I mean, you saw this with, uh, you saw this with Bush, saw this with Romney, saw this with McCain. Now we see it with Trump. It's, it's, it's like, like you're saying, it always breaks one way. And I think that that, that's an important distinction that we need to make looking at the media is that it would be one thing if they were like, half the time they get it wrong in support of Trump, half the time they get it wrong against him. Like that would be, that would be fair. But it's, it's, I, I, I can't think of a single instance where they reported something inaccurately and it went in Trump's favor. I don't, I, 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 I would challenge anybody to come up with something like that. <laughs> yeah, you know, and um, I've had, I've, some would say the misfortune, but I'd say the good fortune. I've been interacting with a lot of these people. And the one thing that I've always been able to tell um, is that they start out before they approach, whether it's broadcast journalism or print journalism, these projects, they already have the thesis sort of in their mind, you know, and they're looking to fill in the blanks. So it's not like journalism as it may have been in like the fifties or something like that, where they would sort of say, you know, we're not really sure. Let's go find out what the facts are and who, what, where, when that's like never any longer really the, the essence of, of methodology that's employed in mainstream media journalism. It's a provocative thesis the, the thesis of which itself may be accurate, may be inaccurate, but is always designed to advance a political narrative. And then, you know, going out and securing facts, quotes, anonymous sourcing, which is absurd, um, to advance that um, that that line, you know. And the anonymous sourcing is a huge problem with this administration. No, that, that, and, I, that... and I think back to one of the one of the one of the most intelligent, uh, smartest, creative articles I think I ever read by my former colleague Dinesh D'Souza when we were at Policy Review, who wrote a piece for the American Spectator about anonymous sourcing and media bias, and he said he closed the article by saying, you know, so so where do uh, these mainstream media outlets? obtain um these anonymous quotes quote we make the damn things up said a uh, anonymous source from me and it sort of feed it back to him a little bit but you know you could certainly see if you apply these kind of standards to any other profession you know there'd be outrage and and uh and an unbelievable pushback but i think implicit in what in your question at the very beginning is just how exhausting this whole process can be that if you're in the fact-checking business or the or the um the business of trying to project things with with a great degree of intellectual accuracy um you know you'd be quite a busy person in in this world right now because you have so many people engaged in it. The, in fact, the majority engaged in it that I don't believe have that as a first, second, or third objective on the list of what they're doing. And I do I'd say in uh, 
my own defense that there's nothing ever more frustrating to me than with the magnitude of communication that I do on public policy issues is, is when if I stumble upon and misrepresent or um, even slightly a factual reality, you know, because in my view, credibility comes from accuracy. And obviously, I have an ideological view of the world, as almost everyone does within this and related professions. But in my judgment, as you can see with some of the pragmatism that I think this president and I'm approaching and supporting uh, in the coronavirus um, pandemic is rooted in, you know, in practicality. And because I believe what we do has to work. I believe what we say has to be meaningful and true. And if those things aren't there, then credibility diminishes. And with credibility diminishing, um, you know, influence diminishes and and usefulness just disappears. So you've got a bunch of people that are really talking to people that already agree with them and uh, are just looking to nod their heads in agreement. And then other people that uh, say, you know, I know what those guys are going to say anyway. I don't need to hear it. Yeah, yeah, and, and I just watch Rachel Maddow, you know. I mean. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see. I feel like that—that's the moral of the story, especially as we're going through this whole coronavirus thing. Is you can't just take headlines or what you're seeing on cable news at face value. Like as exhausting as it is, if you're gonna make up your mind that something is true, you're gonna have to validate it on yourself. So if they quote somebody, go look up the quote. Go see who said it. Right. Look at the context. You know, at a certain point, we are all going to have to be our own fact checkers, fact checkers, because even the fact checkers are biased. Like in all reality, we, we got to do our right. own research. There's plenty of, there's a long list of errors, uh, by the few outlets that are, are engaged in, uh, the checking of facts. They have, they, um, themselves have brought biases and, and inaccuracy. But, you know, the reality, unfortunately, is most Americans don't have the time to do that. Most Americans struggle to um, tune in and learn what the latest news was just day to day. And this is why I think we've got a confidence of institution challenge in the country is that, you know, ultimately um, – we need the American people to have confidence and faith in the federal government that it's acting uh, honestly and authentically in, in the best interests and that they're being told the truth, um, which has not always been the case, but is the case more often than it's not. And we need that to be the case in the mediums that people rely on to understand what's happening in the world around them. And I think we have a confidence in truth telling throughout every, you know, it's existed in corporate America. It exists in, obviously in entertainment in Hollywood. It exists in academia. Um, and so many times I hear these buzz phrases or cliches or statements that um, have, uh, you know, no basis in fact. And this one about the president calling the uh, coronavirus threat a hoax is one that um, you have major mainstream media outlets as recently as today um, repeating without any, you know, and I, am I supposed to believe that they haven't consulted the original source of the South Carolina speech 
And the fact that he so clearly was talking about the politicization of this and not the, the virus itself, of course they know what it is. It's being consciously uh, misrepresented. Yeah, and, you know, and I've, I've I've got a really good friend that I talk to on a regular basis, and uh, he works uh, for one of the uh, major news outlets out out here in uh, Los Angeles, and he's like, and he's and he's a producer there, and he's like, one of my biggest jobs as pretty much the only conservative in the newsroom is making sure that my reporters are actually doing journalism and uh, and research. They're not just pulling a tweet and finding something out of context and throwing it in, throwing it in to fit their narrative. And he's like, that's that in in and of itself is like my full-time job and he's like even then I can't even control everything. It's it's crazy how biased it is and he's like you got to remember the new and this is coming from somebody in the news world, it's all propaganda. That's just the way yeah, it is. The, uh, the question is, like, how do we allow it to get this way? And this is where I push back on some conservatives uh, because I think you so routinely hear, you know, academia is so far to the left. Um, the media is so far to the left. Entertainment in Hollywood is so far to the left. And um, and and like they're con- there's a conscious effort to kind of demonstrate that the, these are all factually like realities of what we're facing in these institutions. I think we like can like dispel of all of that. Of course, those are the realities in those institutions. That's not the question. Question is what were we doing while they were consolidating this ideological control over core institutions in our country, which is not to say that we needed to control them either, because I don't believe in this idea of ideological control of of anything. Uh, but where were we as we started to acknowledge that these institutions that, were, that the American people had come to rely on and that shaped the very character and knowledge of our nation were being taken over by really an ideology that at the end of the day is a minority ideology. I mean, more Americans identify with conservatism than any political ideology around. You might hear all these positive things about socialism, et cetera. The reality is the American people do not on any broader universal scale embrace it. We are the mainstream ideology. I don't even like the depiction of this kind of right-left paradigm. In my view, when I talk about the ideas um ideology values that that I think I represent as a mainstream conservative, those are centrist viewpoints. There there is nothing extreme within any of those views. And certainly that's the case within the National Tea Party movement of adherence to the Constitution, limited government, lower taxes. Those are main those are mainstream centrist political viewpoints that actually needed to come to the forefront because there was such a prominence of uh, extreme viewpoints out there that disregarded those centrist viewpoints. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I think, and I think that again, that's where we as conservatives need, need to be doing, you know, continue to keep, you know, fighting the good fight and articulate what we believe in a rational way because I feel like, you know, and my friend J.D. Rucker over at Knock Report, one thing that he keeps saying is I'm a firm believer that if if all you did is you took the names out, you took the personalities out, you took the political party out, and all you did was put forth conservative values, 70% of Americans would believe in it. But it's it's the personalities. It's the it's the fight. It's the – And let's face it. The, the elephant in the room is the two-party system 
which has a long and storied history in American politics, may not be functioning for us in the practical way that it once was. I believe that's the case there too. You know, if you took some of these viewpoints and took put the and you know you probably have seen these on the street interviews, the various. Um, conservative outlets have done where they, they, you know, take, say, statements that Obama made and say, did you, you know, Trump said this, that or that other thing. And, a, you know, a left of center student, well, that's outrageous. That's ridiculous. So, um, no, actually, Obama said that. Oh, really? You know, I mean, they, they, they wouldn't really identify the objection becomes the personality behind it, the political party behind it or the ideology behind it. And, you know, maybe we just reached the point where what are we doing? Like, why are we why are we putting up that veil in front of anything? Let maybe and I'm just throwing this out there because I'm sure there's deficiencies in this that I haven't yet identified. But why not allow individual candidates to simply campaign on their individual merits and ideologies? Uh, I see so many benefits to that. One is that you would take out this two-party divide where no, where we cannot work together because you've got a different letter behind your name than I do. And you would take the power out of the congressional leadership, which in my judgment has become way too powerful. I mean, you can get this stimulus package, $2.2 trillion. I guarantee you 535 members of Congress, there were probably 10 who were intimately involved in the contents of it. That's shocking. That's not the way our democracy was structured or set up. There were probably more lobbyists involved in this stimulus package than there were members of Congress. That's shocking. Mm-hmm. And then the fact that, you know, the, one of the, the ancillary benefits is, is I think it also would put a little bit of burden on the American people to do some research, right? Because how, yeah. pe- how, many, how many people go and vote right now and they just, you know, R write down or D write down. Now all of a sudden, yeah, you actually get to do some research on who these individuals are and what their projected visions are. Yeah, and, and and also that would that would probably solve the solution of you know like there's you know somebody you know maybe they don't want to identify as a Republican or Democrat so they go independent or libertarian or whatever it is and then auto- automatically everybody just writes them off because they're like oh they're third party they can never win as opposed to making an actual competition of of ideas instead of parties I think yeah. that would that would be which a fascinating true, change true right now a third party candidate cannot for the most part win in this country that's why I believe. Anyone running as a libertarian is is only hurting that side of things. And, you know, look, if you believe that the Republican Party has distanced itself too far from libertarian ideas, my response is go get involved in the Republican Party at libertarian. And I felt the same way about when people started, I guess, simply because party was in Tea Party, this question emerged right away. Surely you guys with, you know, 40, 50 million supporters are going to develop third party structure. And I'm like, no, it's about functioning within the current system, because given the options between getting the Republican Party on track, representing real ideas, standing for real things, being responsive to the voter base and running a third party and winning on a national level, the former is a lot easier than the latter. If you can't do the former, you're definitely not going to be able to accomplish the latter. Just from a strictly political structure of things. So I continue to run into these people who are running as independents and libertarians because they've had it with the system. And I've said, well, it's okay that you had it with the system, but don't. But 
one of the reasons the system has drifted away in ways that are so alienating to you and to many Americans is because you're not involved in it. And particularly in community and local levels, there's so much that you can do with one, two, three individuals being involved in a committed way to try to advance the ball in a certain way. And plenty of stories of school boards and county commission um, boards, mayors, um, state representatives who've, um, you know, been able to accomplish extraordinary things in communities and locales with the support of a, a very small number of people, but, you know, a real committed vision to something that needed to be done that was responsive to the needs of the citizens of that community. Yeah. And, and I think that, and I think that, you know, kind of as we're wrapping up too, like that's one of those things where conservatives a lot of times will complain that, Hollywood is so far left. We'll complain that education is like liberal breeding ground. We'll, we'll complain about all these different things, but it's like, but what are we doing to, to, to fix it? Like, let, let's get some more conservatives in Hollywood. Let's get some more conservative teachers. Let's get some more conservatives that are actually writing curriculum instead of just always complaining that, oh, they're so liberal, but then you go back to just, you know, sitting and sitting at home watching TV and not really doing anything. So that's that should be our motivating factor is let's actually go fix this thing instead of just sitting around and then just complaining about it. Yeah, you can't look at, at uh, politics as some um... – you know, profession that that you were not involved in. You have to look at politics as the world around you. And that world around you is going to affect you, whether you're involved in it or not involved in it. So um, you're either, I'm, I'm forgetting the exact phrase, you're either a participant in the political process or, you know, an object or victim of the political process but there's no other way that we can do these things um, without some degree of communal interaction, representation, um, and governance. You know, ultimately, you're going to have a government that either does represent the will of the people, which we sort of kind of have, or you're going to have a government, say, like that in China, that very distinctly does not represent the will of the people, but, you know, in their eyes— and in defense of the approach that they're taking, they believe they've got the wise men running things. And have they been able to advance the ball under that? Yeah, I guess if those metrics are the ones that matter to you, they've done well. Individuals haven't done well, but has the country's national interests advanced under that kind of approach? It's indisputable that it has. So we have a lot of pushback and a lot of pressure to abandon these core founding principles and we don't want to allow that to happen. And that can only happen if we're disengaged from the process. If the American people are involved and particularly if we're involved in the, in the word I'm probably most overused collaborative ways where we're working together, you know, your skill sets augmenting my skill set, and then one plus one equals three in terms of political uh, uh, impact, then we're going to be, successful or at least as successful as we can be yep no i totally agree and again i think the moral the the, the, the moral of this story is get involved <laughs> like that like that's really what it comes down to so well th thanks so much for coming on michael i really i really enjoy our talks really enjoy having you on 
Um, and again, it's a, it's a fascinating time and it's really kind of, I think, stretching a lot of conservatives in what do we actually believe with this chaos going on? Yep, absolutely. Um, I think the things that we can say for sure is that we will survive this. The country will continue to be um, unique among nations of the world. Um, this threat, as serious as it is right now, will ultimately not be a threat to people. And we'll be back at the issue very quickly in November. Uh, and we're at it already now in defining what sort of country do we want to have. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely the question moving forward. So, again, thanks so much for coming on. Really enjoyed this conversation. And then for everybody else as well, if you guys want more information, keep up on anything, you guys can go to gatekeepersonline.com and stay in touch there as well. And then, uh, yeah, we are going to be back here uh, tomorrow just as we are every day, Monday through Friday. And, uh, yeah, we will see you then. This holiday season, pay tribute to the people who fought for our freedom to celebrate. Featuring the largest American flag in the region, Spirit Park is now open at National Harbor, honoring active duty military and veterans. Take some time this holiday to remember, offer gratitude, and be inspired by the sacrifices of our service men and women who make our way of life possible. Plan your visit at nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. That's nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. You can live a long, healthy life if you're HIV positive. With the current treatments, we can get patients down to being undetectable. The array of options is so much greater today. U equals U. Undetectable equals untransmittable. If someone who's HIV positive, they're taking their medication, they're undetectable, they're not able to pass HIV to their partners. Do it for you, Montgomery County. Your HIV treatment is their prevention. Get more information at doitforyoumc.org.